Listen, uh, I'm really happy to be here because of Pratyush. Uh, Pratyush, you may, you of course remember that in Delhi you sublet Ajaz Ahmed's uh, house and you, Manisha and Kaushik had it I think for one year maybe. And I remember eating several good meals with you, not only for the great company but also we got to snoop around Ajaz's library. And you know, Ajaz died almost a year ago, few weeks to go for his first death anniversary. Um, in the last few years of his life, I had the greatest joy of working with him to produce first one book, which was a long story of his life and work uh, called Struggle Makes Us Human, uh, uh, which... Huh? Nothing makes us human. Nothing alien is human to us. Nothing human is alien. Fine. You guys remember? I don't remember. I'm a little emotional because of the memory of all those years. Um, actually, in that book, he makes a really interesting point, which I want to just start with, even though it's nothing to do with what I'll talk about. But I started asking him about his frustration in the 1980s with what was happening in the global academy. You know, the rise of, even in the 1980s, as early in the 1980s, um, 1985, the publication by Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Laclau of a book called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, where they, you know, in a way, I think, abuse Antonio Gramsci, a great communist intellectual, um, to advance something they called post-Marxism. And Ajaz had written an essay about this sort of, you know, uh, you know, galloping posts that were appearing, post this, post that, post structural, post modern, post Marxist, post colonial, post everything, you know. And uh, I asked him about that period. That book, by the way, Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, I felt tortured by that book because it was completely evasive. And in my own opinion, completely mischievous use of the Marxist tradition to sabotage the tradition. Anyway, whole generation of people, I think, had their minds destroyed by that book. So I asked Ajaz about it, and he said something in his very clever way, you know, pithy way. He said, all post-Marxists are pre-Marxists. In other words, uh, post-Marxists return to idealism, in a way. They don't continue to deepen and ground themselves in trying to better understand the conjuncture of our times. You know, you can make a criticism of, let's say, the Marxist method, but to say that the Marxist method itself is a problem without engaging with what the problem is in the Marxist method, the real problems in the Marxist method seems evasive, you know, mischievous, as I said. Um, because after all, they utilized the cliched understanding of the base and superstructure, cliched critique, straw man critique of Marxism saying that, you know, it's not interested in culture. It's only interested in, um, you know, economics, for instance. It's such a cliched straw man. And for us in India, it was a bizarre kind of understanding of Marxism because our Marxism, our real Marxist tradition, not the straw man tradition, had always been interested in things like, you know, the social formation, caste, questions of how, um, you know, Indian society had been colonized. These are all fundamental questions which were not being reduced to economics. So 
how would you then argue that Marxism is merely about economics, not interested in culture or not interested in social hierarchies and so on? Seemed to be a straw man argument, but my God, that approach from 1985 onward, in many ways, in my opinion, disarmed academic thought. And even in India, where we had a robust Marxist tradition, that tradition was greatly damaged by the entry of some of these kind of disputes and debates, which again, didn't engage fundamentally with the texts that came before them. I'll give you one last example and then I'll get to what I really want to talk about. Maybe, actually, this is what I really want to talk about. So, one last example is when the first volume of Subaltern Studies was published in 1982, 1981, three years, four years before the Laclau and Move book came out, there were lots of claims made in the introduction. And, you know, I like a high-spirited introduction. I have nothing against making great generalities to make a point. You know, sometimes when you want to bang the table hard, you have to bang the table hard. You can't come softly and say, you know, others have banged the table before me. So I don't need to bang it myself hard. Just accumulate all the fists that came on the table and you can hear the sound of the banging. Sometimes you want to bang the table hard. That's to make a point. But I felt in that introduction, Ranajit Guha did something equally mischievous argued that all previous historiography in India had, you know, taken the nationalist view. Now, that argument immediately erased a generation and more of scholars, like Irfan Habib, for instance, who had battled against the nationalist narrative, constructing, digging a trench of Marxist interpretation of the Indian past, very different from the nationalists, you know, but they had been suddenly erased in the critique. In other words... It was easy to appear exciting when you're taking on, you know, Bipan Chandra and people like that who were the standard bearers of a rather dull nationalist narrative, you know, which was, you know, that would go from like Tilak, say, or maybe even earlier to Nehru and then, you know, say that the Nehruvian project was... No, Irfan, Irfan was critical of this from the very beginning, didn't accept that, was digging another trench. But in 1981, this text appears, says... All historiography of the left in India is a nationalist historiography. We are going to come up with a subaltern approach. Interestingly, a review article was um, produced in Social Science magazine, which tried to suggest, look, there are lots of other scholars, Sabhyasachi Bhattacharya, also trying to write an article, wrote a very good article, indeed, about eight years before subaltern studies came out, called History from Below. Uh, he was the president of the Indian Historical Association of Venerable Scholar, Vice-Chancellor, I think at the time, Vishwabharati University, previously professor at JNU, subsequently professor at JNU. Sabhyasaji Bhattacharya's entire life work, that trench that he was digging erased in this statement, all nationalist, history, all left history is effectively nationalist. We are going to do subalterns. Nobody's done it before. Now, that's an exciting claim, except it suddenly muddies the terrain. Because in all the texts that they produced, they absented, there was no, never a communist in any of their vision of the subaltern. There was no organizer. They were just the people, you know, spontaneous uprisings of the people. But the painstaking work of building mass struggles, the kind of sacrifices people made, you know, this morning I had a great meeting with Mohan Bikram Singh. Now, the guy is 89 years old. You know, whatever one thinks of his amazing political trajectory, 
imagine the peasant struggles that they were part of, what, now 70-some years ago in the 1950s, the struggles they built up. How many people took immense sacrifices to build struggles? Their roles are also got to be documented. You know, you can't just say there's something anonymous called the people, the subaltern, you know, um, without any sense of the subjective forces involved in constructing and participating in the process of human history. Subjectivity plays a role. It's not just that there are these abstract abstractions, one after the other, including the people. I'm reflecting on all this just to say that, you know, one of the things we are excited about in the work we are doing at Tricontinental and why we are happy as a group to come here and also we want to share ideas with you. Why we are happy about that is we feel like there is a moment now where we can take stock of the fact that the official academy has I think had some trouble you know, with these currents of post this, post that and we have to find a way to revitalize um, academic thinking, intellectual thinking, not academic thinking narrowly intellectual thinking in general about the pressing issues of our time and that's what we are doing and I, I feel that that's what you've been doing for a long time, incubating different kinds of intellectual discussions and so on and I'm really happy that we are here together today. I know that's half my time already in this uh, but that's a habit of mine that's appalling. Um, okay, I actually was really keen to talk about um, something else and you know, I think this is something I was reflecting on yesterday at Tribhuvan University as well. Um, we're in a really bizarre period in world history. You know, I, I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, last week, the U.S. Defense Minister, uh, Lloyd Austin, was in the Philippines, where he met Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., um, President of Philippines. And they executed a clause in a 2014 um, treaty that the U.S. had signed with the Philippines, which allows the U.S. to create bases in the Philippines. So five new U.S. bases are going to be created in the Philippines. Three of them are at Luzon Island, in the very north of the Philippines, the closest point in the Philippines to Taiwan. Well, this was reported in the press, but not adequately. Um, it was reported. I read the news with great sense of anxiety. You know, because it seems like the provocations are continuing and continuing and continuing. About two and a half years ago, we built a platform called No Cold War, where we've been holding public events online and we've produced some materials and so on. Our interest in that is to alert people to the concept of the new Cold War, to think about what's happening, why it's happening and so on. Part of this, in a way, has to do with a kind of lack of thinking um, of the information war that we've been under for a long time, where it's difficult to think the concepts of what's going on. You know, um, the concept that we are presented with is the rise of China. You know, China is an authoritarian country. China is aggressive. China is expansionist. China is, in fact, a colonial power in Africa. It's the kind of language we get. Um, there are covers of Economist magazine which say that, the new colonialism. You know, Chinese dragon on top of the African continent and so on. It's always been curious to me to read the old colonial powers, you know, basically criticize somebody else for being colonial. When, in fact, as we showed in a document we produced, that the maximum number of military bases on the African continent are U.S. bases and French bases. 
In fact, the Chinese have two bases on the African continent, but neither of them are military bases of a normal type. Both of them are naval stations which the Chinese built in order to enable the UN mission to stop piracy in the, uh, the what's it called, off the coast of Somalia. These two bases are in Djibouti. So it's interesting how our world has gone, you know, and that's why I use the, maybe it's a polemical phrase, information war. It's interesting what's happened in the world. So the United States has the world's biggest drone base in Agadez, Niger. I visited this place, you can drive for an hour and it's the same base. It's an enormous base, about maybe four or five hours south of one of the largest mines of uranium um, on the African continent in Arlit. Now, this, Pratyush may remember this, remember the scandal during the Iraq war of yellow cake uranium from Niger. Um, that's where it comes from, just north of... So the United States has a massive drone base in Agadez, Niger. There are about 20 U.S. bases in Africa, and that doesn't entertain us in the public consciousness. That's not even part of a problem anymore. Most of the mining companies in on the African continent are not Chinese. Most of them are Australian, they are Canadian, they are Swiss, they are UK-based, and they are US and South African, collaborative mining company, Anglo-American. Um, but it's the Chinese that are colonial. It's not the US or Indians. 60% of the world's mining companies are domiciled in not China but Canada. But nobody has a discussion about Canada's rapacious role in these parts of the world. Canada, which had a very important role in trying to overthrow the government in Venezuela, uh, partly because Baddick Gold, one of the world's largest mining companies, has a massive stake in uh, Venezuelan rare earth and different metals before the Bolivarian uh, election victory in 1998. Uh, two years after that, Peter Monk, the head of Baddick Gold, wrote in the Canadian newspapers that Hugo Chavez, who at the time when the article was written, had published had won four elections sequentially, presidential election, two constituent assembly elections, and then a referendum. He had contested four elections in that three and a half year period. Peter Monk in the article called Hugo Chavez an authoritarian and an autocrat. It's interesting because by what standard do these words get used? This is in the leading newspaper in Canada. So that's why I don't think it's polemical to call this an information war. It's a sort of upside-down reality that we live in. You know, China is expansionist. Um, did you see the pictures of the Chinese balloon that was flying over the United States? during uh, They didn't make the news here. Yeah. It was a strange story because, as I read in U.S. defense websites, these are government's websites, public information, they said, look, this weather balloon has the instruments to collect less information than Chinese satellites which actually fly over the United States. But this became a big story. You know, China is you know, entering U.S. airspace. It's a weather balloon that basically went off course. And weather balloons, as the U.S. Uh, scientists and defense people said in their websites, can only go up and down. It's very hard to uh, navigate a weather balloon because it goes with wind patterns and so on. That's the purpose, apparently. I'm not a meteorologist. That's the purpose of a weather balloon. You don't, you don't want to pilot it. You sort of let it go with the stream. Anyway, but this suddenly became a threat. This is a threat, but U.S. warships that routinely come close to territorial waters of China 
or sometimes cross into the territorial waters are seen as normal. You know, that's seen as normal. Why? Because the U.S. does something interesting. It uses a term, freedom of navigation exercises, is the term they use. Now, this is actually a term from a U.N. treaty, a treaty ratified by most of the world, including China, in 1992. It's called the UN Convention on the Laws of the Sea. The one country that hasn't ratified the treaty is the United States. So the country that most aggressively uses that treaty, which it hasn't ratified, is the United States. They used it against Russia up in the Arctic Circle and in the Baltic Sea, coming as close as possible to the, the territorial waters of these countries, sometimes crossing over and making a big scandal. They've done the same thing numerous times to the Iranians. Entered, and you can see what the Iranians do is they send out these little speedboats to try to disrupt U.S. warships. And then it becomes a flashpoint. You know, we're going to have war and so on. The media dramatizes these things as Iranian aggression. You know, it's Iranian aggression. It's Chinese aggression. It's Russian aggression. I'm not talking about the Ukraine war. I'm talking about these episodes. But it's never U.S. aggression. You know, and that's why I want us to think about the term information war. It's a polemical term, but I'm putting it out there anyway. So United States is going to create these bases right on the doorstep of, um, of China. Not the first bases, obviously. There are many others, from Okinawa all the way down uh, to Guam and so on. Plus, the U.S. has just cut a deal with the Australians to build a very, to expand the airstrip at Tyndall Air Base, northern Australia and Darwin, so that they can land and maintain B B-26 bombers and B-1 bombers. Um, these are bombers that are nuclear weapons capable. But what's interesting is Australia is a signatory of the Treaty of Rarotonga, which, which says that Australia agrees to the Pacific, um, South Pacific, Treaty of Rarotonga is the South Pacific nuclear weapons free zone. But yet, Australia is going to allow the United States to park nuclear weapons on Australian soil with the argument that it's not Australia that has the nuclear weapons, it's the United States. Australia is merely allowing the U.S. sovereignty at its base. So it's a U.S. property now. So Australia is not violating a treaty that it has signed because it has ceded sovereignty to the U.S. base. We can accumulate hundreds of these examples. I mean, literally, I have in my head many of these examples. Country upon country is being forced into a new Cold War, choosing between the United States largely, going to country after country, saying you have to choose between the U.S. and China. Uh, in other words, suffocating the ability of countries to develop their own sovereign foreign policy. Now, I don't want to get into the specifics of how this is impacting Nepal. You know that better than I. I mean, the key word here is the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Um, the other key word here, and we can discuss this later, is the nuclear find or the uranium find in Mustang and how that is going to impact Nepal's role in the new Cold War. Now, I wanted to introduce the term new Cold War and how we understand the term and whether this has any you know, relevance to you or not. You see, the general idea will come after you presented these facts is why is this happening? You know, a rational person will ask, why is the United States spending $1 trillion a year on the military out of $2 trillion global spending? Half of the total global spending on militaries is spent by the U.S. government. Why is the U.S. government spending a trillion dollars on maintaining this massive military 
footprint around the world when its own economy is crumbling, when infrastructure in the U.S. is in bad shape, when Biden couldn't pass an infrastructure bill inside the country worth a trillion dollars. He couldn't pass infrastructure for the for their own country, but they're spending a trillion on the military. You know, this is what uh, Sweezy and Baran in Monopoly Capitalism call waste. Okay, it's a great, I, I mean, it's like it should enter the Marxist lexicon even more. Just the word waste. This is waste. One trillion of your precious surplus, whether you've gained it through exploitation of the world or whatever, use your money to build your own bridges, man. They're falling apart. Why are you sending bombers all over the world to do what? So the question, rational person asks, why? Why are they doing this? It's interesting. I'm going to spend five, six minutes on this, then we can start talking, okay? Why are they doing this? A um, few years ago, I started interviewing lots of people, including Chomsky, about, you know, just a question, why does the United States poke its nose into everybody's business? You know, was my interest, okay? Might seem a little naive, but I thought it's a good way to start the conversation. I've known Chomsky for about 30-some years, and uh, we've talked about a lot of these issues for years and years and years. And, you know, he has his own theory. His theory is that the United States is like a mafia dawn. That if you don't like, if they don't like what you're doing, they whack you. You know, they if you don't like your behavior, coup. Don't like your behavior, bomb you. Don't like your behavior, we'll sanction you. Don't like your behavior, we won't allow banks to lend to you. And blah blah blah. They have many instruments they use, but basically any government they don't like, you're gone. Um, we used to joke years ago, and it's a joke apropos even today. Why isn't there a coup in the United States? Well, because there's no U.S. embassy there. Um, you, you need a U.S. embassy to make a coup. Uh, anyway, so um, why? What's going on? Well, let's look at the conjuncture for a minute, you know, and especially let's look at what has happened in Europe in the last period. Um, because I think the key to a lot of this is what's been happening across Asia and Europe. Um, it's what we are beginning to call the historical integration of Europe and Asia. By the way, this has nothing to do with that colonial geographer Mackinder and uh, no fantasy theories about Europe and Asia. I don't subscribe to any of that stuff. This is just looking at the evidence now. Okay. After the 2007 financial crisis, 2007-2008, there were several important changes which I don't think we've digested enough in our thinking about the conjuncture today. What were some of those changes? Number one, since 2007, it's been very difficult for the United States uh, to reassert its economic power around the world. If you look at IMF documents since 2007, the 2007 financial crisis created enormous anxiety in the IMF, not only about how they are viewed, but about what kind of policies they've been putting out there. 2016, for instance, they released a paper wondering about structural adjustment and whether neoliberalism is over. This was an IMF document. So there's a great deal of anxiety that the U.S. is unable to use these instruments, the IMF, World Bank, etc., effectively to assert its economic power in the world. During the pandemic, there were some shifts because they really took advantage of the pandemic. If you want, we can talk about that later. So that was one real change. U.S. economic footprint around the world began to decline significantly. By footprint, I really mean its control, uh, not so much its ability to you know, gain resources and things. Its control began to decline. So that was the first thing that happened. Second thing that happened was that the Chinese government, um, 
very soon, not, not immediately, but around 2012, 2013, around the time when Xi Jinping becomes the head of, uh, of the government, around that time, the Chinese government began to reassess its relationship to the United States. So Raghuram Rajan, who was the chief economist at the IMF, later becomes the head of the Federal Reserve, uh, Reserve Bank of India. Raghuram Rajan writes in his book that the U.S.-Chinese economy is in a satanic embrace, that China produces these low-cost goods, um, and there are no buyers around the world of the scale needed. United States, the buyer of last resort. So the Chinese lend the U.S. consumers money to buy Chinese goods, which then provide the Chinese with a profit, which they lend to the U.S. consumer, and that was the satanic embrace that Raghuram Rajan talked about. So what the Chinese, I think they began to understand this after 2007, that the buyer of last resort, United States, was vulnerable with the housing market collapse, the credit market collapse. By the way, one point something trillion dollars of consumer debt in the U.S. So how much debt can the U.S. consumers bear? At the time, discussions opened up in intellectual circles in Beijing and in policy institutes and so on, and they began to think of a pivot away from the U.S. market. It's a very interesting pivot, because there were levels to this pivot. Number one was how to increase the internal market in China. In order to do that, they did three things of, of some importance. Number one, they felt there was a need to eradicate poverty. Um, the eradication of po poverty program, which ended a year and a bit ago, where they basically were able to announce eradicated poverty wasn't necessarily from you know humanitarian goals, although there is that, uh, but also because it creates an internal market. So eradication of poverty was one. Secondly, integration of minority areas, the outlying areas of China, was an important uh, part of their their project. That included um, Tibet, Xinjiang, and so on. That there was a feeling. Uh, which had been there since the 1950s, that the so-called outerlying regions of China had been neglected. So China announced a look west policy, uh, expand to the west. That was the second. And then, and the third one was they began to think about the importance of Central Asia and markets further afield. So in 2013, 10 years ago, uh, 2013, 10 years ago last year, they announced in Central Asia the one belt, one road policy, which becomes belt and road. So these are the three ways in which the Chinese began to try and pivot away from the U.S. market, creating an internal market, working through one belt, one road, then belt and road, and so on. So that's the second major change, structural change in the world economy that begins. The third is interesting. You see, the third has two aspects to it. One is the U.S. conducted three wars, which are really own goals, if you see what I mean. Uh, the war against Iraq was an own goal because strategically it gave an advantage to Iran and it gave an advantage to the Taliban. Um, you know, it, it took out in one go the historical adversary of the Iranian regime and of the Taliban. And that was like, I can't believe that they don't have better strategic planners in the U.S. Pentagon. But whatever reason, they got rid of the, uh, of the Iraqi government and also Iraq's oil supply to Europe. That's number one war. Second war... They, that was in 2003. 2011, they destroyed the Libyan government, destroyed Libya's ability to supply oil, which it had been doing at large volumes to the European market. So Europe, in two wars, lost two major suppliers of energy. Neither of them have recovered to pre-2003 levels. Neither of them. 
The third war is a different kind of war. And that's the war the U.S. started to clean up the previous war. In other words, the Iraq war on Iraq emboldened Iran. It basically allowed Iran now to stretch its feet across the region. And Iran then, with no Iraqi adversary to that flank, uh, in fact, close friends with the Iraqi, new Iraqi government, Iran was able to develop relations across the Middle East. Um, in Syria, it deepened its relations. It had relations in the Maghreb region and so on. And the U.S. then started a series of maneuvers to try to engage Iran. Syria Accountability Act 2005, the license to the Israelis to bomb Lebanon and Hezbollah in 2006 and so on. And then finally, and the most gripping thing, was the so-called um, claim that Iran was building a nuclear bomb. Uh, this, all of this comes just in that period. Now, that essentially took out not only Iranian oil. Remember, Iran was building a pipeline to send oil to India um, through Pakistan. That pipeline is stopped at the Pakistan-Iran border by U.S. pressure. Pakistan, which has a terrible energy crisis, can have that resolved tomorrow if the pipeline is reopened. And Iranian oil, but the U.S. will not allow it. So that oil pipeline ends at the Iranian-Pakistani border. Um, the removal of Iran from easy sales of natural gas and oil means Europe lost its third major supplier of energy. Cataclysmic for Europe. This came, remember I said this point has two aspects to it. The first is these crazy, crazy wars which removed from Europe access to its oil. But it came at the same time as you saw new aggressiveness develop in Russia. Russia is an interesting place. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the livelihood of people plummeted. I mean, the life expectancy fell by decades. Uh, it was a, a decade of great humiliation, the 1990s, for the Russian people. Yeltsin was a humiliation as a leader for the Russian people. Putin was actually the chosen successor of Yeltsin. He was brought in so that Yeltsin's crimes, as it were, would not be prosecuted. By the way, it's very interesting how the Western media keeps calling Russian billionaires oligarchs but not Western billionaires oligarchs. I mean, why isn't Gautam Adani an oligarch? Why isn't Jeff Bezos an oligarch? You know, I mean, as if their gains are well-gotten. You know, suddenly Jeff Bezos's gains are good. It's clean money, you know. But some guy with a Slavic name, that's dirty money. Or Gautam Adani, now they are criticizing him a little bit with the strange Hindenburg report. Um, but Adani is not an oligarch. It's very interesting. Back to that information war game. And those of us who work in the press should be sensitive to how we use these words. You know, oligarch here, oligarch there, but not oligarch over there. There it's a, it's a billionaire or entrepreneur, you know. Uh, anyway, we know that the Russia of the 90s was constructed by pressure from the United States. They helped shape that privatized economy. They have, in fact, the guy who helped privatize it is Jeffrey Sachs who's now a big critic of the new Cold War. He's changed his tone completely. Um, so, you know, in Russia, when Putin came, chosen successor, as I said, of, of, of Yeltsin, in the initial period, he basically carried over the U.S. agenda in Russia. Prosecuted the Chechnya war. At the time, George W. Bush, Tony Blair, Tony Blair visited uh, Putin, they went to the opera together. He said, I looked into his eyes. I've seen an honest man. Thomas Friedman, the great columnist of the New York Times, wrote a column where he said, I'm rooting for Putin, you know, because for them at the time, Putin was an ally, you know, great ally and friend. 
you know, then it changes around 2006 when the Russians had two simultaneous things happen. One is a new sense of patriotism or nationalism developed in Russia. The generation coming out of the decade of humiliation began to think that we don't want to be, we want to be a great power again. We don't want to be this subsidiary collapsed country. We want to assert ourselves. It's at the time you hear these new parties appear, names of new parties, including Putin's new party. It's called United Russia. But a lot of patriotic named parties appear, you know, popular Russia, great Russia, this Russia, that Russia. This is a new phenomenon in the 2000s. Putin goes to the Munich Security Conference and says, now in the world there should be no single master. It's a very important speech he gives in Munich. He says that, look, United States unilaterally withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002. Our security guarantees have vanished. We don't have communication on nuclear um, detente. We don't have communication on protections against accidental strikes and so on. So there should be no single master. We need to return to multilateralism and so on. It's an interesting speech. It's available on YouTube with subtitles. I recommend you go and have a look at it. Now, you may have whatever opinion of Putin you want, but it's an interesting speech to listen to. Um, what's interesting is, at that time, Putin also reasserts the Russian um, government's control over the economy. He starts to renationalize a number of sectors, including energy. He renationalizes the energy sector just around the same time. It's part of this kind of belief that Russia must stand up again. You know, that's the reason for the renationalization. It's not a socialist agenda. It's that Russia must assert its sovereignty. Don't, you can't mistake that for socialism. It's Russia mis saying its sovereignty must be established. So he starts doing that. Well, remember, I said this part has two pieces. Number one, Europe lost its principal energy suppliers or reliable energy suppliers. Russia renationalizes its energy companies, puts money into them, restarts supply in a major way and becomes Europe's principal supplier of energy. Up just before the Ukraine conflict, 30% of Germany's energy was supplied by Russia. Those pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, not the only pipelines coming from Russia into Europe. There were pipelines coming through Ukraine, coming down south. And it's also in this period that Russia began to assert the fact that it no longer would permit NATO to come eastward. So the next conflict that opens is Georgia 2008, saying no, Georgia cannot join NATO. It must maintain its neutrality. Soon after, Ukraine cannot join NATO, must maintain its neutrality and, and so on. So why I'm putting this thing here, it's you begin to see that Europe becomes increasingly um, integrated into Asia through Russia on one side. And secondly, Europe becomes increasingly integrated with China. 17 European countries joined the Belt and Road Initiative in this period. So Europe and Asian integration, let's call it that, starts to increase just in the last 10 years, dramatically. Uh, German manufacturing starts outsourcing at levels you can't imagine into China. So where the coronavirus was first detected in Wuhan, Hubei province, it's the heart of German manufacturing. In fact, they say more heavy manufacturing of German companies takes place in Hubei than takes place in the Ruhr Valley. You know, the famous Ruhr Valley, which was the heart of German manufacturing. They basically moved their manufacturing to China. I was interested in this, talked to people in the European Union about this. 
Ask them, look, you had no problem with this integration taking place. What's the issue? Well, one of them laughed and said, you've got to look at our platform. See, the Europeans develop their own Europe-Asia integration. But if you read the, their own plan, it's available on their website, it shows that Europe must be in control of the integration. The integration can't be a two-way street. Or it can't be in their imagination, Europe being taken over by China. See, even having a commercial agreement with China on equal terms is not acceptable. Europe has to control the terms. So they make the argument that, well, Chinese companies are not interested in high labor standards. This is very interesting. Europe only asserts these issues when it comes to trade agreements when they feel they don't have an upper hand. When the IMF comes to other countries which in which Europe has a large say, they don't say labor standards have to be strengthened. They don't say trade unionism must be strengthened, environment must be protected. So it's actually the goose and gander problem. This is not about principles, it's about control. That's what the point I want to make. This is not about principles, it's about control. It's about who's controlling the process, not whether it should happen or not. It's who's in control of it. Okay, so this Eurasian integration is taking place around this time. Question could be asked, of, you know, I'm saying all this to ask the question, why does the U.S. have all these bases? Remember, don't forget that. That's the point of all this. So at this point, you could ask again, why doesn't the U.S. just compete with the Chinese? You know, why don't they make better phones? So why is the U.S. trying to ban Huawei? In Europe, the United States starts a campaign saying Huawei, which makes 5G tools, cannot bring its 5G tools into Europe because that endangers the security of people's private information, that China will steal it. I found this fascinating. The U.S. made this claim about Huawei and 5G tools in Europe the very year when it was um, discovered that the United States intelligence services were spying on Angela Merkel's phone. And two or five years after, Edward Snowden had revealed that U.S. telecommunications companies are already routing information to the National Security Agency in the United States. They are already routing metadata that they collect to U.S. intelligence. So now the U.S. is saying, don't use Chinese 5G tools because they might spy on you. So the Chinese might spying on you is worse than the U.S. already spying on you. So somehow, again, because of this information war or postmodern thinking or whatever the hell post-thinking world we live in, we accept that this is an issue. Maybe it's just racism, that somehow people are less happy to be spied on by the Chinese, but okay to be spied on by the Yanks, because maybe that's a good thing. We are, I don't understand it. If you can explain this to me or straighten me out on this, it would help. But why didn't the U.S. just make better phones? Okay, Firstly, the U.S. makes no phones. That's important to understand. The phones are made in China. U.S. had no problem with China. When China was making phones for U.S. companies, U.S. had a problem when China started making its own phones. You see, China was okay if they were just slaves in the capitalist globalized market. If Chinese workers were just being delivered to German, delivered to U.S., that was fine. The problem with China begins when China starts to accelerate its economy and goes ahead of the U.S. in telecommunications, in high-speed rail, in robotics, in green technology, and a whole host of things. When they start to actually exceed 
the um, ability of U.S. firms to compete with them, they become a greater security threat. Somehow that doesn't appear in our conversations generally. It's always China's expansions. But in what sense? Yes, it's expanding its trade footprint everywhere in the world. If you go to an African country, I was in Zambia last year, you go to the market and try to buy a phone. The only phones in the market in Zambia are made in China. And they are made by Chinese companies. All of them. Huawei, ZTE, all of them. I don't know about the Nepali market. I don't know what phones you use. But it's very rare for ordinary people to buy iPhones. They are simply too expensive for people to buy. At some places in the market, there are South Korean phones, Samsung and so on. But generally, it's Chinese phones. Why is the U.S. not able to compete with China? Some of it is actually quality. That China's green technology, for instance, is much higher quality than what the U.S. is able to produce. But a lot of it is that the Chinese can produce equally good material or near good material, but it's much cheaper. So a Chinese a Huawei phone may not be the same as an iPhone in terms of usability or whatever, although I think it's as good, maybe even better. But even if it's not as good, it's definitely much cheaper. So here we have an interesting prospect. What bothers the United States? See, if we accept the old nostrums of free market and this and that, then they should just be trying to outcompete China economically. Okay, you're complaining about China colonialism in Africa. China comes in and says, look, we'll invest XYZ amount of renminbi, we'll mine your mine, we'll build hospitals, we'll do this, we'll do that, etc., etc., etc. The United States comes and says, if you don't let us mine there, we'll sanction your country. Which is a more appealing deal? You know, why doesn't the U.S. come and compete with China on an economic footing? That would be interesting, but they don't. They use essentially the old phrase imperialism to get a net advantage against the Chinese. I'm going to close with this rather chilling proposition. My feeling is that as a consequence, in a sense, as a consequence of these developments that I outlined, you know, the developments of China's pivot out of being in this satanic embrace with the United States, Europe's extraordinary reliance on Chinese investment and on energy from Russia, the slow move of Europe away from the Anglo-American alliance, NATO's becoming increasingly relevant 10 years ago, a lot of anxiety in NATO documents, Ivo Daladere writing, can there be a global NATO and so on. Great anxiety, NATO, Europe disappearing, entering into closer relations with Asia, to some extent with Africa and so on. The part I didn't get into, which we could talk about later, is BRICS and the role it plays in this. All of these historical social forces that are taking place, rather than confront them economically, in other words, if you want to maintain your dominance, compete economically, or come to terms with changes in the world, where you accept that the United States is not the hegemon in the world, it's just another country in the planet Earth. You can either accept the changes and live with it, or if you want to assert yourself, try to compete in a better way. Don't keep trying to ban countries and so on. Rather than all the, these strategies, the United States is willing to take the world into a catastrophic war. In fact, it has already done so. Into a catastrophic war than to accept the reality of where we are today. So I would like to say the new Cold War concept is just that. 
which is that we are in a situation where the dilemmas of humanity can be addressed. You know, during the pandemic, Dr. Tedros, head of WHO, said less confrontation, more collaboration. We are at a point where we have enough resources in the world, we have enough technical capacity, we can solve so many of our problems. But we're just not being permitted to solve these problems by a force that is alien to humanity. And that force is imperialism. It's a kind of deliberate attempt by certain elites, particularly in the United States, try to maintain a kind of power which is becoming anachronistic. Rather than accept that anachronism, they are willing to annihilate all of us. That's the new Cold War. Now we'll open for a few minutes. Uh, three questions at a time, please. Uh, thank you for your uh, metaphor of peace that you said that accumulation is a bigger bang on the table. And uh, I, I found out that your talk more or less covers your latest book, The Withdrawal, most of the points that you mentioned. And also the point that you mentioned about your relationship with Chomsky, which is in the last chapter. And uh, my question is not related to that book and your discussion. And if I may be permitted, I would like to ask you a question about your uh, first book, uh, sort of the karma of the brown folk, folk right? And uh, the latest trend or data suggests that a particular kind of uh, brown folk from India, they are the most educated and highest earners in the USA. So can there be a second thought about sobhagya of those kind of people? And an added chapter to your new edition of that book. Okay, turn it back. Thank you, Dr. Vijay, for your uh, presentation. I had uh, I had an observation. Uh, I was wondering if you would talk about how you know the U.S. hegemony is based on basically two ideas: one, the dominance of the uh, dollar, and you know, the fact that in the last two decades or so we've seen that globalization actually is taking place at the regional level. So talking about one currency instead of having one dominant currency. And the other fact is uh, the, the other source of power for U.S. and hegemon has been its control over the Bretton Woods institutions. But we've also seen that there has been significant change in, in both its composition and uh, the other settings in those institutions. Uh, so, uh, as long as Bretton, Bretton institution maintains its philosophy, I think it doesn't matter if you have uh, someone of the Korean origin or the Chinese origin, but an American. Uh, how about developing alternative institutions? Yeah which are not based on extractive political economy, which the Chinese state uh, is, you know, sort of not really willing to engage with. So if you could some, you know, highlight how we could think of the two, and then think about some kind of alternative on these lines. Thank you. One more question. My question is simple. How do you see the U.S. and Modi-India relation in your topic in the new Cold War and dilemma, whereas India is in dilemma between U.S. and Russia and is trying to escape 
Radio conversion from the China. Okay. Uh, see, the issue of I'll come back to you in the I'll make it the last one. The issue of dollar and Bretton Woods institution is a key issue for this period. Um, I'll give you some examples to think about. Some, not examples, but things that are happening to think about. The first is we know, and you will know better as an economist, we know that de-dollarization is much easier to use as a slogan than as an actual issue. I mean, the fact is that if two economies are trading with each other, it's unlikely that their trade relationship at the end of the day is zero. There's no balance. Somebody's holding a surplus, somebody's holding a deficit. So if you're trading in each other's currencies, you've got to have a third, fourth, fifth counterparties willing to hold your currencies. So that means that right now the dollar effectively operates as a clearing mechanism for imbalances in global trade, right? That's the, you don't need the dollar, but you need something as a mechanism to clear the imbalances, you know, and to recycle profits that are again an imbalance globally. The dollar has played that role since the 1970s. You know, previously you could have cleared the imbalances in gold or, you know, you could have measured your currency against gold. Leaving the gold standard really did make the dollar. It really is the dollar standard. But it's not a dollar standard. It's the dollar is the actual clearinghouse uh, of currency. Unless you come up with the ability to have another currency, it's difficult to think of de-dollarization. But the trend is there. So many, particularly larger economies, have started changing their basket of uh, currencies for external trade. So China and Russia is a good example, but an obvious example, because the two of them are conducting more and more, over 50% of their trade is in ruble and renminbi. Um, which is why when Biden said, we will turn the ruble into rubble, you know, at the beginning of, of that war, it was an idealistic statement because the ruble is no longer so tied to the dollar economy. Uh, it has actually, they pivoted earlier. In fact, in that sense, the Russians had prepared economically for this war. They brought a lot of surpluses out, generated um, relations with others, mutual currencies and so on, including Iran, which is important. But anyway, so one is you are seeing a tendency not to de-dollarization, banner de-dollarization, but tendency to change the um, is effective um, equivalents, you know, that are there. In other words, the percentage of trade done in dollars is declining for most countries. Uh, there's a lot of using local currencies, in other words, two country currencies or a third currency. Now, in, in Latin America, um, Lula's government announced at the CELAC meeting, the, um, the Caribbean and Latin American countries uh, meeting in Buenos Aires, then the creation of a new currency, which is called the Sur, the South as a regional clearinghouse for regional trade. And in fact, we're seeing a lot of that. The, you know, the digital yuan, for instance, uh, offered by the People's Bank of China, uh, the Reserve Bank of India has announced the creation of a digital rupee. Uh, will this help as a regional clearinghouse? Like, you know, in, in fact, Nepal-India trade is effectively already moving in that direction. Um, it doesn't have to go through the dollar and so on. So we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, in fact, I just want to alert you that in uh, March, the tricontinental dossier, we, we produce a dossier every month 
will be done with the Cuban Institute for Political Affairs um, with Jose Cabanas. That text is about regionalism and the importance in the world today of regionalism, the gatherings. We believe that the move is from unipolarity to regionalism. We think conversations about multipolarity are misplaced. That what we're seeing, the actual movement of history is to regionalism. And of course, this region is the sad duck of them all because we know Sark is basically a wall painting. You know, it's not really an institution as it should have been uh, for, for obvious reasons. Alternatives to the Bretton Woods institutions are also complicated because each of the alternatives created have basically used the kind of, let's call them for shorthand, neoliberal policies or austerity debt policies that the IMF has thrived on. The IMF effectively runs an austerity debt trap. You know, they, uh, they lend you money at terms that are impossible to pay back. You go into debt because you pay, you use more and more of your budget to service the debt, and then you have to borrow to manage the budget and blah, blah, blah. It's an austerity debt trap. So in that sense, many of the other institutions have been using the similar formula. But I'd like to say that we, we're seeing some shifts in the mirror if we, if we look carefully enough. For instance, two examples that I'll give you. One is when the BRICS was created in 2009, um, it's... I wrote a book called The Poorer Nations, which has a chapter effectively on the BRICS, which is called, I don't know, something with Southern characteristics. Maybe capitalism with Southern. It's a big launch critique of the BRICS, okay? I stand by that because the institutions created basically try to mirror IMF, World Bank, and so on. You know, like contingency reserve facility offered by the BRICS is a mirror image of the IMF. Um, th there was not much change in the policy formulas and so on. And all the loans were denominated in dollars, by the way. They were not even willing to risk their own currency baskets and so on initially. Um, the BRICS Bank is the more interesting institution. Uh, it was last there with the Brazilians. Uh, I think his name is Pedro Nogales, was the uh, director of BRICS Bank. It's based in Shanghai. They are innovating all kinds of things. But I haven't seen the innovations come to instruments yet. But let's watch. You know, as I say, it's not easy to innovate new instruments for trade and financing. If I tell you one, I said there were two, one instrument that is interesting comes out of the People's Bank of China. And I don't know if you followed this closely. These are the currency swap arrangements. So with the Argentinian government, for instance, the Chinese said, look, we'll take your pesos and we'll give you renminbi. Now, you can use the RMB to pay off your creditors, if possible, but if they demand dollars, you can sell the RMB in the open market, for which there's a market. There's no market for Argentinian pesos. Effectively, People's Bank of China is laundering currencies which don't have an international market. So they are willing to buy the currency, which doesn't have an international market, sell RMB, and then you can do what you want with it. Now, they have an advantage there, because they're giving good terms advantages to themselves, you know, in this. But actually the advantage to the People's Bank of China is that they are putting more renminbi into international circulation. So renminbi is available for local trade arrangements and so on. This is a different kind of long-term challenge to the dollar. Now, I don't actually think, I'm not a proponent of, you know, some escalating de-dollarization. I think it's going to be a very complicated process, including through these mechanisms. So when you say alternatives to Bretton Woods, well, let's relax. Uh, the pandemic 
afforded the IMF and World Bank, and particularly IMF, an immense lease of life. So under Georgieva, the IMF gave loans to 23 African countries, insisting during the pandemic that they pay their debt servicing before they finance the health ministries during the pandemic. 23 African countries out of 54. So that, that incredible arrogance of the IMF has returned at a level we have not seen in a long time. You know, remember I said there was an anxiety before. Is neoliberalism good, blah, 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 debt trap financing. During the pandemic, they returned. And interesting, Georgieva herself is not that neoliberal. You know, she came out and said, we'll open a facility, we'll help people, debt service arrangement, COVID debt, blah, blah, blah. All that was fine. But when the lending happened, the conditions have been incredibly strict. By the way, they don't call them conditions anymore. Structural adjustment and so on, those words are not used anymore. It's just, you know, the agreements. Uh, charming. Well, in terms of Modi and India, others in our team can talk more, Prashant can talk more about it, but um, isn't it utterly interesting how Modi's government, which comes from a tradition, the Hindu right tradition, complete fealty to the US, to US power, you know, the, uh, from RSS onward, uh, in a way, anti-communism of the Hindu right, anti-China of the Hindu right, anti-Muslim policies of views of the Hindu right, essentially made them the perfect ally for the US. Um, because they ally with Israel, they are against China, and so on and so forth. But it can only get you so far. I mean, this government has increased the immeasuration of the majority of people in India. But there's a limit to the immeasuration that's possible. You know, after some point, if you continue to put downward pressure on people's ability to survive, you're either going to get even greater mass starvation deaths, or people will rise up in revolt, like in the farmers' revolt, and so on. If India, and I was talking to somebody about a calculation on this, if India had last February cut off purchases of Russian energy, and if India, especially ONGC, which is the Indian state's oil and natural gas company, hadn't bought assets in Russia at this time, what would have been the economic loss? It would have been enormous. Like, as it is, there's inflation in India. If fuel prices went up, Imagine the level of economic catastrophe even greater. You put even more downward pressure on people's ability to survive. There are limits. Marx writes about the limit. There's, you know, he says that the capitalist would like to exploit the laborer. So the laborer, the working day should be 24 hours long. He writes in Capital in the working day chapter. So they would like it to be 24 hours long. But there's a limit. People will just die at work. And you can't afford that. So you've got to give them time to go home. So you give them, you know, effectively you give them three, four hours to sleep. You know, if you have a 10 hour working day, then this woman worker goes home, has to take care of the children, elderly, this, that. How many hours people sleep? Today we have landless workers in India, women waking up at three in the morning, cooking the food for the whole family, walking two, three miles to the train station, getting on a train, going so many hours to go find day labor, come back, they come back late at night, they sleep two, three hours. So that's the exact maximum limit at which you can allow exploitation. If you think about that in terms of India in general, India has, that's one reason why India just can't cut Russian energy buying. 
uh, it's very much beneficial for the Indian economy, particularly because Russia was selling India energy at a good price. Okay. Second thing is, India has a historical relationship with Russia. Um, you know, not only the arms purchases and so on, but going back to 1971, you might not remember this or know this, but in 1971, when India intervenes in the war in what becomes Bangladesh, the U.S. 7th Fleet was sailing northward to bomb Bengal. Um, and it was the U.S., uh, sorry, the India-Soviet friendship agreement that had the Rush Soviets called Washington and say, don't you dare intervene there. You know, these memories are there in at least the external affairs ministry and even in the right-wing elite. They remember these things. These are not you know, empty stories in people's lives. So that's another. Third, as Prashant always mentions, there's a rise amongst the Indian middle class of, let's call it an anti-colonial attitude. Uh, there's a rise of this feeling we don't want to be bossed around by, you know, the Europeans and the US and so on. We have our own thing. You see this in the attitude of the Indian external affairs minister. Um, you see this actually in the attitude of the Indian petroleum minister. Uh, they all go on TV, Western TV channels, and they argue against the presenters. The presenter asks the Indian foreign minister effectively, you know, why is India buying oil from Russia? Did you see this clip? Yeah, that was a viral everywhere. He turns around to the presenter and says, let me tell you something. And he's a very soft-spoken guy. He's a career diplomat, even though his politics are elsewhere. Um, he, he, was a, he says, let me tell you something, very soft-spoken. He says, you know, the oil, I've been looking into this, he said, the oil that India buys from Russia in a month, Europe buys in an afternoon. Go look into it. That's the viral clip. And people are circulating it, saying, you know, a hero, you know, he stood up to the West and this, that. So there is a rising middle class I don't know if we can call it anti-colonial as such, but it's a kind of interesting new nationalist thing. It's not nationalism against Muslims now, which is the normal right-wing nationalism. This is a kind of nationalism like, don't boss us around. We'll do whatever we want, you know. I'm not saying it's a good nationalist thing either. It's not, that's why I'm curious, maybe anti-colonial is the wrong phrasing to use, but it's a kind of, don't boss us around nationalism, which can become aggressive and toxic and it can go in all directions, but it exists. That also explains a little bit of it. But the third thing is, I think, important to register is I feel that this Indian government, which, you know, I have my problems with the government, nonetheless, and it's not just this government, any Indian government at this time would be positioned in such a way to have to deal with the fact that it has been part of this BRICS, um, you know, uh, project, uh, which, you know, was not born great fruits or whatever but there's a sense that after the world financial crisis, the fact maybe now forgotten the European um, and US banks called their governments and said we are in great distress and a number of European and US G7 countries called India, China Indonesia and other countries that at the time were carrying surpluses and said will you transfer your surpluses to us to liquefy the you know Western banking system, and in exchange, what we'll do is we'll give you more votes in the IMF. We'll increase your vote share. But actually, significantly, what Sarkozy told the Indians is we will shut down the G7, and the G20 will take its place. Now, as you know, they betrayed these countries on that. So there is a sense in India, not just Modi's government, 
but in that elite section of India, that India deserves to be a player in the world. You know, this is different from we don't want to be bossed around. That India deserves to be a player. What kind of player will you be if you're just a poodle of a big power? So I think that that, in a complicated way, there's a lot of things happening, but these things are coming together. Uh, and I think, therefore, it's unlikely but not impossible that India would join NATO, for instance, which is on the table. Uh, you know, it's recently again on the table. But I, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, the, the diasporic South Asians have always been making money. I mean, look now in Britain. All the worst right-wing politicians are of South Asian heritage. <laughs> Rishi Sonak, Suella Braverman, you know, all of them. The worst of them are South Asian heritage. Preeti Patel, you know, most racist um, minister in the British cabinet, previous cabinet, anti-immigrant. The two most anti-immigrant ministers in the two cabinets, Preeti Patel in Boris Johnson and Suella Braverman in uh, Rishi Sunak's government. Racist, you know, politicians. These are both of Asian extraction. Um, you, can, you can make a lot of money, you know, uh, and that can change your views. But in a way, it doesn't change your views. I, I don't know what their views were in the first place. Um, you know, what I write about in that book is that there is a there is a way in which the generation now I'm talking about the U.S. a generation of Indians in particular, because that's the fits the model for me easier. That go to the U.S. miss two of the most important emancipatory projects of the 20th century. So the Indians who go to the U.S. were born after 1947, because the U.S. prevented Asian immigration from 1925 to 1965. So very few Asian Indians went to the U.S. in that period. So those who went after 1965 students were born around 1947 or after. So they didn't participate in the freedom movement. So they didn't have that experience. They got freedom for free. Okay? They arrived in the world, went to government institutions, IITs, this, that, and the other, got highly skilled through the people's labor, and then left. Now, interestingly, they arrived in the U.S. In, after 1965. 1964-65 is the culmination of the major wave of the civil rights movement. So they arrive in the U.S. at a time when they don't have to use blacks only bathroom. So they are beneficiaries of two great struggles. And when they are beneficiaries of two struggles that they didn't participate in, they negate those struggles. Because then they think that they are themselves God's children. Not that they are a product of great human sacrifice. So the extraordinary arrogance of the Asian diaspora, pretty Indians in the U.S., is as a consequence of having missed these struggles. See, I don't believe that people need to necessarily always thank the past for the present. You know, but I must say, yesterday going to Tribhuvan, I was very well reminded of being a student. And watching students there fight for democracy in 1988, 89, and then eventually 1990. You know, including police firing and things like that. Students died on that campus, right? Fighting for democracy. Democracy doesn't come easily. People fight for these things. But if you are the beneficiary of something that you didn't fight for, and you don't have a living memory of it, and people don't teach it to you, an arrogance develops. 
then you think that I, I did, what I get, I got by my merits. Merit is the worst word here. What I got was by my merits. Not that I am a beneficiary of enormous social struggle. It's a problem with individuals. So when you ask that question, you know, how to understand them, that arrogance is baked in the cake. You know, it's a social thing. It's not people's fault. Can we go for a second round question? Uh, after, after our passage. Okay. Thank you, Vijay, for this So, what you I'm curious more about what Latin American countries are doing. So, first question would be what uh, some of the government like uh, Lula and uh, I would say Luca Afre in Bolivia are thinking about uh, China's one belt, one road issue. I think you could share a little bit about that. And second is also about. It's not until you fall share a little bit about that, uh, the introduction of new currency, but I think by Lula or someone in that regional collaboration, in, uh, but in what are other initiatives they are you know, planning to do, you know, that might... Uh, talk about debt trap, and Chinese, uh, China is also accused of creating debt trap in the developing countries, um, through BRI and other uh, investment in big infrastructure. Uh, sometimes we also feel, you know, feels like, uh, feel like uh, uh, sometimes uh, the uh, payback rate for Chinese loan is the highest one. So what uh, do you think? Is there is this also a, a information uh, you know, war or a part of information war? Or is this uh, is there some yeah, logic of this issue? Another question. The, the CEDA agreements, terms and conditions, interest loans. And everything is very open. But whereas the Chinese, uh, the donation that comes, uh, loans that comes to build the infrastructures, highways, uh, contracts, big, big billions contracts, they are not even, uh, the iota of the information is given from the government to the public. So how do you see that? Um, three great questions all related. Before I answer these, can I let Prashant talk a little bit about people's dispatch? Um, Thanks, Vijay, and thanks everyone who came here. Very interesting questions, great discussion. So, I'll be very, very brief. Just that I think uh, Vijay interestingly mentioned what is being what we call the information war. And it is, in some senses, a very real day-to-day you know, -day conflict in terms of the kind of news we read and stuff like that. So, uh, of course, there's one aspect is the geopolitical, how geopolitical news is covered and, you know, how countries, certain countries are portrayed in certain ways, etc. But and we think it's also about how, say, move, people's movements are covered, how trade union struggles are covered, how farmers' movements are written about, what is the tone they take when they talk about people protesting, for instance, how the media reports it. It's always angry people, random people, like we just said, no sense of who's organizing the protests, which are what are the forces which for years have mobilized people together. That is never there in the news. It's always, okay, people protested, here is one person saying, this is why they're protesting, right? So, I think over, over many years we've had these discussions and we've felt that a lot of what the media does is basically, uh, you know, not cover society while trying to cover society in its own way. So, one of the projects we have, which, is, which works very closely with Tricontinental, is called People's Dispatch. It is a, uh, it, it, is, it is a media organization based out of India, the US, we have someone called in Ecuador, friends across the world as well. And what we try to do is basically write about these struggles and protests and geopolitical issues from a 
very different lens from the media of the West. So, uh, say if there's an election process, if there's a strike, a trade union, protest in Peru, for instance, elections in Brazil, how do people's movements see these issues? How do farmers' movements see these issues? How do trade unions, what is a trade union's perspective on election? Is something, for instance, you're very interested in writing about. So, uh, People's Dispatch has been around for about almost close to five years now, and we've written about pretty much every country in the world. So it's an ongoing project, still very early days, so I would invite all of you to sort of take a look at it. It's peoplesdispatch.org, and you can find us on social media also. So uh, I, uh, please do take a look at it. If you have any feedback, advice, suggestions, do get in touch with us as well. You can you find the address on the site. So just wanted to tell all of you about the project. Thank you. Yeah. You know, a number of us are here also from the Tricon team in India, and I don't know if you anybody has visited our website, thetricontinental.org. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Um, you know, I send out a weekly newsletter. This week's newsletter is going to be called um, uh, Will the U.S. Make Taiwan into the Ukraine of the East? Um, last week's newsletter was about Israel. Basically, they cover world issues through looking at how movements are understanding them, trying to do some sense of the academic literature about them. But our main text are these dossiers. This one that I'm going to leave with Pratyush is called 10 Theses on Marxism and Decolonization. Um, we produce one every month. The team in India has produced some really good work. Um, one of them is on the Indian farmers' movement, which to my mind is the best assessment of what that movement was. Another one on Indian women's movement, uh, increasingly, we are producing regional work. So this year, we're going to have one in association with a research institute from Lahore, Pakistan, called um, the Deindustrialization of Pakistan, which is about how finance um, and Pakistan's... Um, essentially, part of it is on the really bad agreements Pakistan has made with electricity companies, private electricity companies. Pakistan guarantees the private electricity companies... Uh, fuel at a certain price, which means when fuel prices rise and the rupee collapses, uh, the government is on the hook for buying fuel at much higher prices to pay at a set price, to sell at a set price to private, uh, you know, energy providers. Uh, so things like that have been looked at by this research institute in Lahore, and that will come out later this year. We're going to hopefully do something like that with uh, people in, in Nepal, uh, Bangladesh, we're already working on a project. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza tragedy. Um, if you might remember that. Uh, we're going to do something on garment workers in Pakistan, Bangladesh, as a way to explain the political economy of Bangladesh. Not just the garment workers, but how that garment worker issue is struck, is a way to look at the entire political economy of the country and so on. So have a look at the work of the uh, team in India on the website, but not only that, actually, that's the least of it. Look at everything, you know, the work of our, um, our you know, partners in, in, in Argentina, in Brazil, and in on the African continent. So take a look if you get a chance. Um, we really, what we want more than anything is your feedback, you know, and your sense of what's bad, what's, you know, good, what could be better, um, uh, what you think is just terrible. You know, I, we love getting feedback because we are basically, you know, consultative research institution. 
Um, anyway, these are actually two questions. Um, they are related, the debt trap diplomacy and the information, one in the Latin America and the Caribbean. Let's do the first Caribbean, uh, Latin America, Caribbean, and BRI. Um, I have spent a lot of time traveling in Latin America and reporting on events there. One of the most stunning events for me was the coup in 2019, which happened in a way that I couldn't imagine. The coup against the government of Evo Morales. In fact, I was so stunned by it, in four weeks I wrote a book, which I published afterwards called Washington Bullets, which was basically written in four weeks. I was so angry at how people completely misrepresented that coup as not a coup. You know, uh, there were even sensitive people on television saying things like he's stayed too long in power. And I thought the first indigenous president of South America has stayed too long in power, but he had been in power less time than Angela Merkel in Germany. Nobody said she should go. You know, it's time for her to leave. But Evo Morales, the first Indian head of government in South America, must go because he stayed too long. 14 years he was the president, one large majorities, you know, and so on. Democratized the country in an amazing way. Also, built up their domestic lithium economy, collaborated with the Chinese, and about three weeks before the coup, released the first indigenous-built small car in a small country like Bolivia. Poor, wretchedly poor country built its own car out of its lithium. Using lithium to build a lithium-ion battery, which powered its car. Bolivia built its own electric car in 2019. That is extraordinary. Then a few weeks later, he is cool. Okay, why did I say that? Why did I start there? Because it's actually emblematic of the contest that is taking place. Arce, this week, signed a deal with the largest maker of lithium batteries. Happens to be a Chinese company, which is investing a billion dollars into Bolivia to expand the lithium-ion battery production facility so that Bolivia can then make more cars which it can then export to other Andean countries. These are small cars, perfect for the roads in the Andes. You know, larger width car is no good in mountain roads. You need narrow cars. It would help a lot in the roads in Nepal. There are these little narrow cars. I'm also afraid they might fly off the road because they are so little. And you worry about in mountain roads having electric cars. What happens if the battery runs out? So you're stuck somewhere. Anyway, it's their problem. Um, and they are innovating constantly. <coughs> so it turns out that in most of these countries, China is not only an importer of raw materials, but is an investor in these strategic nationalized sectors. These are all nationalized sectors. The lithium mining in Bolivia is 100% nationalized. Battery making is nationalized, although in partnership with other people. That's That's true. And the electric car companies nationalized again in partnership, you know, for ancillary parts and so on. Anyway, they're also investing in all these things. So when you talk to people in Latin America, they find it interesting that after the BRI entered Latin America, the United States started a project called American Crescent, which was their contest against BRI. They, they were put in a challenging position and then they responded. Now, they come to these countries not with investment, but with the promise of a private-public partnership. That's the promise. So now, if you're Bolivia, you have a choice between $1.2 billion investment, clean investment coming in, to help expand your domestic industry, 
Or you have a private company from the US and Canada coming in and saying, we want to extract your raw materials. So you are faced with a choice. Do you want to industrialize with money that comes from China? Or do you want to extract and sell your raw materials for money that comes from Canada? That's a choice they should be allowed to make. Okay, and increasingly they want to take the first option. Because these countries want to industrialize. I mean, I've been thinking a lot being in Nepal, talking to people about the industrialization of a country like this. You know, I read last year 19,000 people died of lung inhalation, lung diseases. 19,000 in Nepal died last year. Okay, that's the second largest number of lung disease death per country. So Nepal is number two of lung disease deaths. Why does that happen? Well, because people in parts of the country are getting you know, smoke asphyxiation from chulas. Smokeless chulas could be industrially produced in Nepal. Not only for Nepal, but exported to other parts of the world. But for that, you need to have some kind of steel manufacturing. You might want to have chulas that are powered by solar energy. So it comes with a small solar panel attached to your chula. These are all technologies that are widely available and cost effective. But they would need investment and that would necessitate industrialization. See, I saw there's an NGO working in Nepal that gives away smokeless chulas. You know, it's the old biblical adage. You can give a man a fish and he eats for a day or you teach him how to fish and he eats forever. So you have a choice. You can either extract your raw materials, uranium and mustang, and then you can buy chulas from outside, or you can be gifted chulas from charity, or you can industrially manufacture them somewhere in the Terai or whatever. That's a choice your government, that's a project your, but then you can, on that basis, you can make a rational decision, who do I want to get investment from? You understand? I mean, that's my, that's how I think the Latin Americans view things. They are making a rational decision. There are choices on the table. For the first time in a generation, there's a choice on the table. And that choice is not provoking a contest, which I talked about. Okay, that's there. Second question, it's related. Um, let's take the debt trap diplomacy part first. Um, I was interested in this for two reasons. And I'll give you the two examples because they come right to your question. The first was Sri Lanka. Remember the Hamantota port project? It was everybody says debt trap diplomacy, Raja Paksha has made the deal with the Chinese and so on. I didn't know much about it, I didn't follow it up and so on. Then the Atlantic magazine, a US magazine, ran a great article. How many of you read this? It's called Debt Trap Diplomacy. It's a terrific article. It's written by two US scholars who looked at the Hamantota case in detail. And this is what they found. I highly re recommend you read it. Okay, Don't take my word for it. It's in the Atlantic magazine. It's not in you know, People's Daily or anything. It's in a U.S. pretty respected magazine. Two respected scholars who teach in the U.S. looked at this. What did they find? They found that the Sri Lankans were keen on developing this port. Okay, that's their right and so on. Regardless of the fact that the Raja Pakshas are thugs and so on, they were keen on developing the port. Sri Lanka doesn't need more infrastructure. Okay, so you're going to have to get financing somewhere. So they went hither and yon, World Bank and so on. Eventually, the best deal on the table was the Chinese. But the Chinese deal, which these scholars read, was interesting. Because the Chinese said, look, let's develop 30%. percent i forgotten the numbers. I'm making up the percentages. I don't remember the details, but something like 
Let's develop 30% of the port, open it. Then start generating revenue. Once you start generating revenue and start paying off the borrowing, then you can open up second phase of expansion of the port. Open up that. Start earning more revenue. Then do the final phase. That was the Chinese proposal to the Sri Lankans. Once the Chinese started put money in and the port started being built, the government said, no, we want the whole thing built first. So the whole thing was built and it's, you know, you, you put in, you sunk an enormous investment in. And you can't get a rate of return in a short amount of time that's not going to, that's going to prevent you from incurring a permanent debt. So they didn't listen to what they were being told. The second example of this is a couple of years ago, I was traveling in the African continent and there was a story I read, very malicious story. I forgot, Prashant, it was by Bloomberg maybe, which said that China is going to seize the Uganda's only international airport, was the headline. Yeah, I think it was Bloomberg. China is going to seize Uganda's only, it's Entebbe International Airport in Uganda. I read that story and I said, this is interesting. I mean, if it's true, it's monumental. Chinese are going to take over the only international airport in a big country like Uganda. So this is a monumental story. So what does a curious person go? They take a flight to the airport, which is going to be owned soon by the Chinese. <laughs> Went and dug around, talked to officials there, particularly officials in the finance ministry. One of them had put out a tweet saying, you know, unfortunately... Uh, I want to admit, this is there was a parliamentary deliberation. Put out a tweet saying, I don't remember if I read the document, final document, before we signed it, and whatever. So I talked to them and, and said, what's the situation? Well, again, the information was publicly available. You know, they just didn't follow it in detail. Now, what the information said, it, it's not true that the Chinese were going to take over the airport. But it's true that it was a bad deal for Uganda. It's true it was a bad deal, but they didn't negotiate the deal. The deal was that the Ugandans had to make payments in China. The Ugandans could have come back and said, we want to make payments in our currencies. You know, these are all things you negotiate. But the finance ministry official said, we didn't read the deal in full. It was a really attractive deal, we signed it. <laughs> Okay, now who are you going to blame here? But Bloomberg's headline was, hey, now in no part of the deal which is publicly available, because it's available in the Ugandan government's uh, thing, nowhere does it say that seizure of asset is possible. There is no clause for seizure of asset. The reason Bloomberg ran that story is an anti-government website in Uganda ran a story like that. Bloomberg didn't verify anything. Just a sensational headline. And that headline went all over the world, including Indian newspapers ran it. China is going to seize an airport. Now, when one asks, but they don't, there's no iota of transparency, that's interesting you say that. All these years, when the IMF study group goes to a country, they release on their website the statement of, the short statement of what the study team, like the study team comes to Nepal, you go to the IMF Nepal page, there'll be a short, I don't know, two, three thousand word narrative. Nepal team came, IMF team came, we were met with the finance ministry, we met the prime minister, 
this, that, and other. We had frank discussions. The government told us there's so many vulnerabilities. You must have read a million of these. So many vulnerabilities. They promised to do labor market reforms, all the cliches, and we are going to visit again in six months. You know, we see that the Nepal, the most crucial sentence in that is we see the Nepali government is committed. The word committed is the gold standard because that then allows the Nepali government to go to the, you know, the London group and the Paris group, commercial and, and uh, you know, multilateral lenders and say, we are committed. IMF has given us a ranking, lend us money at a decent price. That word committed is very important on the short statement, but it's not the long statement. Where's the long internal report that they have where they talk about all the vulnerabilities? They don't release that. What you get, if you go to the People's Bank of China website, now a lot of it is not in English. That's also a problem. And that's a disadvantage for us. You know, if you're going to negotiate with a Chinese, you might want to have somebody who can read Chinese. Because frankly, today I have a piece out at the Monthly Review website, which is a critique of the idea of civilization state in China. I compare India and China. In fact, colonized countries in China. I mean, we are at a disadvantage. And there I give the example. I open my phone, I have Facebook, whatever. In China, they don't have any of this stuff. They have their own apps. You know, they have their own intellectual world. They were not colonized like that. You know, they don't have to think in three languages. They have their own scene. So when they draft their documents to sign, it's drafted in Chinese. You know, so there's that disadvantage. People Bank of China has a lot of their material. It's all in Chinese. So you can Google Translate as much as you want, but Google Translating economics is not easy. The terms sound like weird things. But the point I'm making is that it's true that there is not enough transparency in financial matters, particularly public loans, loans taken by public entities. But that's a global problem. That's not just a China problem. That's a global problem. Nepal probably takes more than 50% of its loans from private lenders. It's an international trend. We've moved from, you know, from institutional public lenders to private lenders. Even sovereign debt fund is a kind of somewhere in between a public and private lender. But increasingly, it's to the commercial markets. Those agreements are just not public because they are treated as commercial secrets. So there's a general problem of financial transparency that I fundamentally agree with. We need more transparency. But I don't think it's a China-US problem. I think it's just a global problem. Yeah, uh, just uh, just to, uh, to give you one information, like Nepal has purchased uh, vaccine, Verocell uh, from China, and uh, and uh, and during that vaccine price was not under the non-disclosure agreement. So uh, and then vaccine for God's sake, vaccine you can't disclose the price. I mean, I hundred percent agree with you. But look at what you just said it was a non-disclosure agreement. Why sign the non-disclosure yeah. agreement? That's yeah. on the Nepali government. Yeah. You know why did the government sign the agreement? Okay. Uh, if there are no more questions, uh, 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 thank you, Vijay, for a uh, wonderful lecture. <laughs> ah, thanks a lot. Uh,